Amen. Thank you, Anna. Beautiful. We're looking at Daniel chapter 6. We've been going through these wonderful stories from Daniel, and we're in chapter 6. And if you remember last week, if you were here, that the theme of Daniel is in, pri- in spite of present appearances, God is in control. And every single chapter, it seems like the present appearances are that things are uh, bleak, things are upside down, things are wrong, things are disordered in each of the chapters in Daniel so far. And in this chapter, once again, we're, we're seeing Daniel with his back against the wall and actually uh, next to some lions, and God's gonna deliver him. And we have to continually remind ourselves with our own present stresses, anxieties, the things that we are currently facing, that in spite of present appearances, God is in control. God is not an intellectual thought or an afterthought. He is the true, he's the true and living God. He made heaven and earth. He upholds the universe by the word of his power and he sovereignly rules and overrules as he pleases. Now, there's an interesting twist in in theology and I, I may have gotten this idea from John Frame. But the idea is this, is that some people believe that God is absolutely sovereign. He is sovereign over everything, even sovereign over our supposed free wills. And God is the one who gets all the glory and our salvation. The only thing we've contributed to our salvation is our sin. And there's some who believe in a really big God. I like to say I do. Yet they don't really believe God does miracles anymore. They say, well, he doesn't do supernatural gifts of tongues, prophecy, interpretation, healing. Those are off the table. And theoretically, God could do a miraculous intervention, but let's just assume he won't (laughs) because he's sovereign, but he doesn't really act like that anymore because he does all things in decency and in order, and he doesn't really break in anymore. God's transcendent, but he's really not imminent, and we focus on his presence and not his power. There are others who believe that God is really imminent. And he's not just here in presence, but in demonstration of power. And he works miracles, and he, but he would never violate my free will. I don't believe in election or predestination. Or, and I think Satan laughs at both of those theologies because they're both limiting God's sovereign power to save and intrude into the affairs of men. Which side are you erring on this morning? Because we tend to err on one or the other and vacillate. But biblically speaking, there isn't a difference between God's providence and God's miracles because it's all God. Psalm 136 is a wonderful Thanksgiving psalm and the refrain keeps saying, the steadfast love endures forever. And it's repeated as it talks about how God created the heavens and the earth. His steadfast love endures forever. He made the sun to rule the day. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The moon and stars to rule the night. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. God is creator. And then God is praised as our redeemer who divided the Red Sea in two. Steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Who made Israel to pass through the midst of it. Steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Who overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And then the psalm ends with saying, he remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever. He rescued us from his foes, from our foes. His steadfast love endures forever. And here's how the psalm ends. Who gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. The great praise is he's giving you lunch today. 
And you say, well, that's not a miracle. The other things are all miracles. You see, biblically speaking, there isn't a difference between God's provision and his providence and a miracle. He rescues from foes. He shuts mouths of lions. Thank you, God. Thank you for lunch today. It's all from him. There's no dividing line biblically between God's providence and God's miracles. He simply does both. He breaks in all the time. You have not because you ask not. God gives good gifts to his children. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you knock and the door will be open to you. But we like to cling to the exceptions to the rule rather than the rule. So let's pray more boldly for the rule which he has established. And if he gives you the exception to the rule which was just sung about, sometimes he doesn't part the waters but he often and normally does deliver his people. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Daniel. He may not do it in the way you thought he was gonna do it, but God does break in all the time into this world. We should not live flatline that God doesn't really intrude into the affairs of men. We should be bold prayers. And so I want you to keep that in mind as a paradigm as we're looking at Daniel this morning. Daniel 6. It pleased God to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, there's a big lie, and the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where, his win where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. No change in plans. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the, the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into a den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and his sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives, before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the wonderful things in your word. Help us to see that you are indeed the great God of the universe, the only true and living God. There's none like you. May you be worshiped in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name that you be honored now. Amen. I put an outline in the, in the back of the uh, bulletin there, and we'll follow that, and we'll dive right in. Begins with, with the plot, with verses one to nine. There's this terrible plot that Darius's government would have these checks and balances to it, and there was 120 satraps, and then over these 120 would be three presidents to hold them accountable. This is how this government was gonna work. And we are told in verse three that Daniel became distinguished above the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So the future is looking bright for Daniel. Darius has taken note of him. He plans to promote him over everyone and this leads naturally into verse four which tells us that the presidents and satraps are jealous of him. And they're probably concerned that their corruption is going to be exposed because Daniel is this virtuous man and he's going to be draining the swamp and they conceive a plot to get rid of Daniel to actually have him eaten by lions. How can men be so wicked? Well, did not Jesus say in Matthew 15, 19 that out of the heart comes evil thoughts 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. These men are full of this. And these presidents and satraps who didn't like Daniel and they didn't like that here's this Jew who's in exile and and here he is being put over top of us and he's prospering and the king has noticed him and not us and they want to get rid of him and they begin to look for dirt on him to expose him. Let's lay it out. They can't find anything. They find no ground, we're told, for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. He was squeaky clean. And so the only way to get Daniel, the goods on him, was to get him for doing something that was right. And so they go to the king in verse 7 with a lie that all the presidents, prefects, satraps, counselors, and governors were all agreed on this, all except Daniel, that is. And they puff up the king with flattery. And for the next 30 days, you are God and only prayers are going to be made to you. And King Darius couldn't resist this temptation and the trap. He falls into it. He signs the document, which in essence was a death warrant for Daniel. And note that the death warrant in verse 7 comes with the warning that anyone who prays to anyone but you, King Darius, will be cast into the den of lions. When you see uh, the den of lions, you realize that the lions had a job to do back in that day, and it was apparently commonplace to have a lion's den. One commentator just said that lions had a nice way of disposing the undesirable members of your court, both in Persian times and in Roman times. So they would just have this den, and they would feed these lions, and often they would just feed them with the bad people. And so they'd open the hatch, and down you went, and that was the end of you. And the lions were taking care of it for their meal for the day. Well, they, they set a decree and that you would be fed to the den of lions. And so this den already existed. It'd be something like maybe our electric chair today. Well, this obviously uh, leads to prayer. But what's interesting about the prayer in verse 10 to 13 is we see that this was an established habit of prayer three times a day. Daniel was this man of principle. He was resolved. And the Bible does say, you know, some say you shouldn't kind of hold up the examples in Scripture anymore. We should only look at the redemptive historical understanding of how this relates to Christ. And I say it's both and. The Bible says these things were written for you as example. And we are to follow the examples. But ultimately, Jesus says these things that Scriptures testify about me. So we look at this and we say, what does this teach us about Christ? But what does it also teach us about example? about the means of grace, about Daniel, who was a man of principle, and his principle of prayer wasn't the change if the circumstances changed. He's actually realizing that even if I'm a meal for the lions, I'm going to keep praying. And you might be wondering, why does Daniel keep his windows open when he prayed? I mean, he could have just shut the windows and gotten really quiet about his prayer life and you know, but what he's really doing is he's demonstrating. This is his little, his way of communicating that I am not changing and I am testifying that I believe in the true and living God and I'm not going to shut my yap. I'm going to keep talking to him and about him. He wasn't changing his principles or his prayer life. He wasn't afraid of his contemporaries to know about his faith. He wasn't just going to have this private faith at work that we're never allowed to talk about these things. 
This isn't contradicting what Jesus said about praying in private. The point is one commentator succinctly put it, when prayer is fashionable, then it's time to pray in secret. But when prayer is under pressure, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing the king more than God. And when that came, open the windows, get on your knees and keep praying. And so verse 10 is just loaded with, with meat to reflect on. We learn a lot about Daniel in verse 10 of this. His prayer life is on display. We're told how long he, he prayed. And we're told about his pattern of prayer. He prayed three times a day, most likely the pattern of Psalm 55, which was morning, noon, and evening. Doesn't tell us how long he prayed, but we know that he had a posture in prayer. He got down on his knees. His content in his prayer, he was full of giving thanks to God. And the direction that he prayed was towards Jerusalem. And he could have been easily rationalized that he, look, I, I'm, I am so high up in this government. I am like next to Darius himself. He could have easily said, I'm just too busy to pray. He was more involved in secular life and affairs than we are. He had great responsibility, yet he took the time to pray three times a day. Do you pray? Do you pray? Does, do you believe God's going to break in and answer your prayers? and give you the strength that you need and intervene and change hearts and lives. Daniel's prayer life, this is risky. It was coming at the potential cost of his life. John Piper put it like this. He says, this must mean that prayer is more important than life. Daniel would rather pray than save his life. Not praying was a worse prospect to Daniel than being eaten by lions. That's a radical commitment to, to prayer. Just think of it. Can you say with Daniel, you'll have to take my life before you take my prayer? Because that's what he's saying when he opened the windows and prayed. So we have to ask ourselves, do we take the spiritual disciplines seriously? That was partly why I asked the question this week in email. I'm really curious, are people in the church interacting with God? Are you reading God's word? Are you listening to him and getting answers from him and, and him meeting you? Or is this it? Is, is, is the job on the pastor to come feed you and every time there's an issue, you gotta call the pastor or call another friend. Do you interact with God? Is he meeting you? I hope that he is because ultimately, he's the only one who can help you. We're called to make every effort we're to train ourselves in godliness, strive to enter by the narrow gate, take up your cross daily, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, beat my body, make it my slave. If my right, right eye offends you, pluck it out. Strive together with me in your prayers. I mean, there's a lot about effort. Grace is not opposed to effort unless you're making the effort meritorious. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, but it was the grace of God working in me. And so we are to be about striving in holiness and diligence and using the means of grace. And we see Daniel doing it at the cost of his life. Daniel is decisive. The moment the injunction comes down, he keeps doing right what he's doing. He doesn't have the slightest hesitation about the means of grace. I remember one time hearing somebody's testimony that had been married a long time. And they just shared something very simple. It was, there's never any discussion of whether we're going to church on Sunday. Never a discussion, because they go. 
It's a part of the means of grace. There shouldn't be a discussion. We are going. You know, are we going to read the Bible this morning? It shouldn't be a matter of discussion. We just build it into the routine of life. That Are we going to pray? Well, we build it into the routine. Whether I'm going to pray before meals, I'm going to pray as needs come up, and as the Lord brings things to my mind, I'm going to pray about them. We're in a spiritual battle. That's what you see here. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and principalities. Sinclair Ferguson says on this chapter, he says, temptation to compromise is never an isolated incident in our spiritual life, but it's part of a larger strategy of Satan against us. And the way to win the big battles is we have to win the small battles. And so he goes into the, he doesn't go into the secret inner chamber. He's now praying and notice he's praying towards Jerusalem and not towards Babylon. Are we praying with a heart inclination towards Jerusalem or Babylon? Now, Babylon's the ultimate symbol of the city of man, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jerusalem is symbolic of the city of God. So praying towards Jerusalem is praying for God's will to be done, God's kingdom, his name. Praying towards Babylon is me-centered cat theology. Lord, bless me, make my name great to the ends of the earth. Please bless my stuff and, let, and may my kingdom come. But praying towards Jerusalem was also the biblical model that goes back to King Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, where King Solomon said, if, the, if your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray towards, to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen, that's Jerusalem, and the house that I have built for your name, which was in Jerusalem, then here in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. And so today, praying towards Jerusalem, well, where's the temple now? Where's the power and the presence? It's Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. He's the temple that was destroyed and raised up in three days. The power and the presence in Jesus' name. And so Daniel's doing that. And what we see is the, the protection in verse 14 to 23. And look where the protection comes. Daniel's name is three syllables in Hebrew, and it means God is my judge. Dan means judge, El means God, and that little syllable E means my. God is my judge. And what mattered to Daniel is what God thinks, not what man thinks. And so notice where his protection comes from. I felt this very insightful by Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary, he says the whole focus in verses 16 to 20 is on the anguish of the king rather than the trauma of Daniel. So Daniel goes down into the lion's den and all you're hearing about is the king. It's like, why is that? He says it's a tad strain. Daniel's thrown to the lion's den and we only hear about the king and his agonizing night. Why is this the case? He says, I think the depiction is intentional as if to say rulers may not be personally hostile to you and even if they favor you, don't dare pin your hopes on them for they can prove as helpless as anyone else. It's a writer's way of preaching Psalm 146, three and four, which tells us to put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. And so often we pin our hopes on people to deliver us. So-and-so, if they would just, if I, this person would just answer, then it would be fixed. 
And what Dale Ralph Davis is saying, he says, our writer then is doing a little preventative theology in this section. He seems to say to Israel, and we could say to God's people today, you may have rulers and others in high places who are well disposed to you, but don't rest on them as your trump card, which I find to be ironic. We that think that Trump is gonna fix everything and put all the Supreme Court justices in place, and we, 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 we don't bring in the kingdom, and neither does Donald Trump. For even they, for all their apparent power, can prove as helpless as Samson without hair. He's trying to bash idols before they become idols. So where does Daniel's deliverance come from? God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth. Does this mean that God will do the same for us? I asked that to the kids and we got kind of a nice yes and no, didn't we? That was kind of interesting. Well, I th if you saw the little quote in the bulletin in the front, if not, you can read that. I thought this was pretty profound by Tim Keller. He kind of takes moralism to task here. And he says, look at this story. Isn't this exciting? God shut the mouth of the lions. Therefore, the moral of this story is if you are good and you trust God, God will take care of you too. And clearly, I mean, he says in this chapter, the reason Daniel was delivered is because he says, I was found blameless. I've done no harm. And because he had trusted in his God. So certainly his obedience mattered. So is the moral of the story is if you are good and you trust God, God will take care of you too. So be courageous because God will take care of you. That's the moral of the story. He says, if that's how you read it, no wonder a lot of you aren't Christians today. That just doesn't work. The moral of the story, if that's what this is here for, if the writer put this story in the Bible so you would know that, you were, that if you were innocent and you were good and trusted God, not a scratch. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. No wonder if a lot of you aren't Christians today, he says. He says, that's not what Christianity teaches. That might be what you heard, but it's not. Obviously, it doesn't work. He says, no wonder you're so unhappy. No wonder you've been so dashed. No wonder you've been so illusioned. It's not Christianity. It's not the life and message of Jesus. In fact, if that's how you read it, if the moral of the story is the way you read this event, if the moral of the story is if you really trust God will never let anything bad happen to you, I know somebody who was more innocent than Daniel. I know somebody who trusted God a whole lot more than Daniel did. I know somebody who was also thrown into a den. I know somebody who also had a stone rolled over him. And I know somebody, and also know he was filled with wounds. There were all kinds of scratches on him. There were all kinds of terrible things that happened to him. The moral of the story approach to this account not only contradicts the life of Jesus, it contradicts the message of Jesus. You see, what I'm trying to communicate is think about this from the bigger spiritual perspective. You have been delivered from the ultimate lion's den if you trust in Jesus. The Bible says if anybody whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he is, was cast into the lake of fire. And it says where the devil and the false prophet already were. That's some bad company. That's where the lion is, the roaring lion. So when you look again at this account, think about Jesus in this lens here. You see, the early church, when they talked about Daniel and the lions then, the early church saw this as a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Do you see the similarities? Both Daniel and Jesus were falsely accused by the jealous leaders of their day. 
Both Daniel and Jesus are brought to a higher official and both officials work hard on their behalf to free them. Both Darius and Pilate's Pilate were not able to release them because as C.S. Lewis once said, Pilate was merciful till it became risky. Courage is the ultimate virtue. And we can be merciful and love mercy, but when it comes to, ah, I might lose my kingdom here, well, courage was the ultimate virtue and it didn't, they weren't courageous, both Darius and Pontius Pilate caved to the peer pressure. And so both Daniel and Jesus are turned over to be executed, Jesus to the cross and to the tomb, Daniel to the lions, and both are sealed with a, by the, the king's decree. Both Daniel and Jesus arose out of their plight, but Jesus' deliverance is much greater as the reality is so much greater than the foreshadowing. And that is what we have in Christ Jesus in his resurrection. The question is, are you with Jesus in the coming out? The Bible says we were buried, therefore, with him. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we are what theology calls union with Christ. And so when he died, we died. We were buried, therefore, with him. We were down there by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we are being saved from the big den and the big pit and so what we see in this story is a, is a big twist, the big punishment in verse 24. All these evil accusers who maliciously attack the righteous man, God brings justice and these people through Darius are thrown down into the pit. And can you imagine these powerful, influential government officials are on a hunt to catch an 80-year-old man praying I mean, that's pretty, it's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? The lesson for us here, though, is instead of fearing our enemy, we ought to fear for our enemy. Because what we see here is what happens to our enemies if they don't repent. Where are you this morning? Do you love the church? Do you love Jesus? Are you against the church and are you against Christ? And are you the ones that are on the outside attacking the church, but yet you, if you don't repent, that's where you're gonna be thrown? Or are you in Christ, trusting? Even when we're afraid in our battles, we say, when I am afraid, I'll trust in thee. And I can guarantee you, when he was going down, there was a lot of fear going on. I'd have been screaming, help Jesus, help me now. And so the practical application for us this morning is we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. We need to stand firm. We need to be diligent people of prayer, expecting God to break in, expecting God to do the rule rather than the exception to the rule. We'll, we'll take the exception if that's what he has, but let's pray that, Lord, you said if we seek, that we would find. And if we knock, the door will be opened. But we know one who went down to the tomb and has already come up to the other side and we're with him. And the Bible says we've already been raised with him and we're already seated with him now in heavenly places. 
And by faith, we say this is true, and we trust. So here we are in the now, and we want to make much of our life like Daniel did, so that ultimately, by the end of the chapter, who is Darius praising? We see the praise is, is that Daniel recognizes your God is amazing. Like every chapter, this happens. And once again, now Daniel's saying, your God is amazing God. He's the true and living God. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. And he has made us to be salt and light wherever he's placed us, to engage with the culture, engage with the world. And, and Daniel's no jellyfish that's going wherever the tide goes. He is directed of doing what is righteous and being a blessing, even if it hurts. Let's pray. Lord, give us courage. Give us that kind of confidence. And Lord, when we're weak, we ask that you would be our strength. Lord God, may we fear you more than we fear men and the wrath of men. May we fear your wrath. We thank you that you saved us from it by Jesus taking our wrath, being the propitiation for our sins so that we could be adopted children of God. So Lord, we come running to you afresh this day. Fill us with your spirit now. Help us to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in singing, Mighty to Save. Would you stand with me?